0: Good morning. We are finishing our last chapter of the book of Philippians. We'll do verses 2 and 3 today. Uh, the title of this sermon is, We Are Not Enemies. Philippians 2, sorry, Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. I urge Judea and Syntek to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, as we just sang, about your Holy Spirit to breathe upon us, to indwell us, to anoint us, that the last bars that we sang were about a unity in Christ, that only a true harmony and unity can be done through the power of the Holy Spirit, God. And it takes a work for the local churches and the universal church to trust that you are able to do that, that you are able to heal our brokenness, that you are able to cause us to repent from our divisions, Lord, and our bitterness. And God, that you are able, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to demonstrate a unity in us that is portrayed to the world, that Jesus Christ is Lord and came from the Father. And Lord, we see Jesus pray that In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, he prayed for us that we would be one so that the world would believe that you sent him. And God, may the unity of our local church, of Cornerstone, God, proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this to your glory. Amen. The context of the passage is rather simple. There are two women, right? Udea and Syntek, who are having a dispute, and a local church. Local church is just what we are, like in Cornerstone. Universal church is all Christians. They've apparently been unable to reach an agreement and move on. Now, If you're unfamiliar with church conflict... When it's handled poorly, it is one of the most ugly and discouraging things that you as a Christian will ever experience. And if it's not conducted, or because if it's not conducted in a biblical manner, it will typically end in ungodly results. Therefore, Paul here exhorts the church of Philippi to help these two women reconcile and, and he gives them just one just one piece of application in order to do so he says tell them to agree in the lord so our, our our study for today in this passage is to figure out how Paul expected them to do that so that when we if we or when we face the same circumstance we may do the same. When I first started studying this passage early in the week, I, I wondered what in the world these two women were having a dispute about. They got to the point that the Apostle Paul felt the need to address it in his letter to the church. And Paul doesn't say what the issue is, does he? He most likely knew what the quarrel was over, but chose to leave it out. The more I thought about the fact that it wasn't in there, the the more I became convinced that the specific issue they were arguing over was intentionally left out. It was done on purpose. The reason I believe it was left out is because it is more beneficial for us and the entirety of Christianity, that it isn't mentioned because if he did say what the exact issue was between these two women, then it would provide an opportunity for those within the church to be tempted to excuse themselves from having to reconcile. Because they would, they would point to this specific passage, if the precise issue was in there, and say something along the lines but pastor, or but friend, but they were disputing about fill in the blank. We're not disputing about that. Our dispute is different. Our dispute is more important. Our dispute matters more. Whatever there was to justify. And they would say, therefore, because that's not what Paul was talking about, that's not what they were quarreling over, I don't have to reconcile because my issue isn't the same as the two women in Philippi. So in other words, what, what we may be tempted to do, if the exact issue was there, is we would try to use the circumstances of their dispute to free ourselves from the obligation of making peace with one another. It's not hard to believe, is it? If we consider the tendencies of our sinful flesh, which tried to rationalize and justify our actions, when I think about that, when I think about my own tendencies to justify or rationalize my own actions, I'm more and more convinced that the Apostle Paul, mainly through the inspiration of God, or the divine inspiration of God, omitted the precise issue for that exact reason. Maybe I'm wrong, but nevertheless, the fact that the issue isn't listed means whenever we get into a quarrel with one another, no matter the circumstance, because the circumstance isn't there, that's the point, when we get into a quarrel with each other, no matter the circumstance, the word of God, the Bible, Holy Scripture, leaves us with one option, agree in the Lord. Which implies, it doesn't matter what your dispute is over. It doesn't matter what our dispute is over. Because the application will always remain the same. Verse 2, agree in the Lord. You've heard it said, well, we must just agree to disagree. Well, not as Christians in reconciliation. We must agree to agree. But Paul says our agreement must be in the Lord. And the Bible doesn't expect us, anticipate that that we are going to live life together without ever disagreeing with one another, right? It doesn't expect that. But the Bible does expect us to respond accordingly if we do. And that response is to make every effort to reconcile and restore. I have three points to help live this out. Number one, understand we are recipients and representatives of Christ's love. Number two, agree to submit to the Lord. And number three, remember we are not enemies. So we'll start with number one. We are recipients and representatives of Christ. If you're looking at the passage, one of the first things we should note, Paul's not referring to non-Christians. We know that because Paul says these ladies in verse 3 are partners with him in the gospel and that their names are written in the book of life. It's important to make that observation because The Bible does not hold the church accountable for exhorting non-Christians to make choices that obey Christ. In fact, the Bible tells us obeying Christ is really the last thing on an unbeliever's mind, on a non-Christian's mind. So therefore we can conclude that the command to agree in the Lord that Paul gives, it's not just for anyone and everyone. It's only for those who are in Christ. So if we wanted to narrow it down even further, this word from Paul is exclusively for those who belong to the same local church. And in this context, the same local church is Philippi. But you could replace that with Cornerstone if you wanted to personalize it. Now that may be a no-brainer. I'm certain it probably is. But the point needs to be made because if this isn't a text... For non-Christians, because they aren't expected to submit to Jesus, then the reverse is true. This text is for Christians, and we are expected to submit to Jesus. We are expected to agree in the Lord. So in other words, if we claim that Jesus is Lord, the Bible expects us, those of us who profess to be Christians to obey these commands. or We as as Christians, we're not a people who get to decide which commands we want to obey and which ones we prefer not to. And, And in this case, it means when two of us or more have a dispute that we can't resolve, and it creates a barrier between our fellowship or division in our church, then we have an obligation of love to restore what has been broken. I'm not naive. I know many of us have met professing Christians who refuse to reconcile by forgiving someone or by refusing to ask someone for forgiveness. And, and yet every Sunday, every Sunday morning on the Lord's Day, they, they continue to assemble together to worship, and they drink from the cup of bitterness, and while at the same time, bless the Lord. Now, the Bible says it should not be this way. James 3, 9 through 10, James writes, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father. Well, that's good. But, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. That's not good. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Now I won't go into the depth of me believing that James epistle is taken from the Sermon of the Mount but I will say that I'm certain James developed this teaching right here from what Jesus taught about worship and reconciliation in the Sermon of the Mount and precisely in the Sermon of the Mount where Jesus taught us which one should precede the other reconciliation or worship worship reconciliation reconciliation In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23 through 24, Jesus says, if you're offering a gift on the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. First, go and be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. Which means, according to the priority concerning reconciliation or worship, Jesus says, reconciliation should proceed."? Right? Yet I also understand, for some, that things have gotten so out of hand, and it's been so long, since they have, that they or you wouldn't even know where to begin, to start a process of reconciliation. So let me point you in the right direction. Ephesians 4.32. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Did you deserve Christ's forgiveness? Did you earn it? Are you not just as sinful as the brother and sister that you continue to curse? Are you the exception to the rule of Romans 3, which says none are good, none are righteous, no, not one? There's only one exception to that rule, and that's the man, God, Jesus Christ. Did you deserve it, his forgiveness? No. Did you earn it? No. How can we then demand that our brother or sister in Christ merit our forgiveness when we ourselves have been forgiven by grace alone? And the word of God asks us, how how can we withhold forgiveness from one another and still sing praise to God for pardoning us by grace alone? If you're struggling to forgive or reconcile, remind yourself of this verse each day, Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It means that he... Went to the cross while we were still degenerate sinners, unworthy of forgiveness. And if we cannot forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us, we will never fulfill the law of love that our Lord told us to obey. Yet, even worse, There's a caution for us to heed because if we remain hard-hearted toward each other, then one day the Lord may say to us, woe to you, you hypocrite. I forgave you much and you refuse to forgive them little. Loved one is recipients of God's grace and we are recipients of God's grace. We are called to represent Christ on this earth. One way we do it is we reconcile our relationships. We restore the unity that was broken by forgiving one another the way that Christ has forgiven us. As the church... We must hold ourselves to this standard of teachings. That's what Paul's doing. That's what he's writing to Philippi and saying, hold these two women to these teachings. Have them agree in the Lord. Restore what's been broken, whatever it is. That's the standard. I actually changed point two in my notes <laughs> but I forgot to do it on that. Uh, my point, too, says be charitable toward the other person. Be charitable. Look, look at the text, verse 2. Paul doesn't say that they must agree over the issue being disputed. He doesn't say that they have to come to an agreement about anything related to their quarrel. (laughs) They're only given one imperative to restore unity, which is agreeing the Lord. Agree to submit to whatever the Bible says. That's what agreeing in the Lord means. So therefore, whenever we have two or more individual Christians who are in a dispute among themselves... And we attempt to mediate the situation, we we need to ask the parties two questions. One, in this corner, if the Bible gives you a definitive answer, will you agree to submit to the word of God? Number two, if the Bible doesn't give you a definitive answer, will you choose to be charitable toward the other person? For most of us, number two is much harder. I mean, agreeing to submit to the Word of God is necessary. It's required. For me, and I think for some of us, it may be even more difficult for us to agree to drop the issues that aren't definitive in the Bible. Due to the stubborn pride each one of us possesses, we, we're not fond of loosening the grip that we hold onto our personal preferences with. And there's, there's nothing wrong with having personal preferences, preferences, opinions, perspectives, as long as they aren't contrary to the word of God. And as long as we don't make them the primary issues. Yet as Christians, we have a knack for making secondary issues the primary issues. And when we choose to stay on that course, loved one, our personal preferences become idolatry. And tragically... It's it's typically the secondary issues that churches allow allow to divide themselves. Rarely do you ever see a church dividing over key issues. And Think about it. When is the last time you saw a church split over the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Christ? Any church splits over justification by faith alone, salvation by grace alone? And not not that I'm aware of. There's one specific denomination having some troubles right now, but I'm not going to call them out. That's a big issue. But typically, it's not primary issues that divide us. It's the secondary. <laughs> and, and, and here's what's even sadder is it's a lot of it's not even the secondary issues that divide us. Uh, we, we have a propensity for disputing over matters even less important than those. Tom Reiner, uh, uh, Christian author and researcher, he listed 25 reasons he had been told about church splits and divisions. At one time I heard that a, a church actually split over a chicken bone. And I tried to find it on the internet, but I couldn't find it. So that led me to Tom Rainer, uh, Rainer, Reiner, however you say his name. Uh, and, and I'll list seven of them. Number one, church either split or had serious divisions because of these issues. Number one, an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. You're doing good. <laughs> these are true, by the way. These are, these are not jokes. Number two. A petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. Number three, arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. Number four, I identify with number four. An argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal or not. My issue isn't with the adjective deviled. My issue is with the mayonnaise it takes to make that. So I, I get it. <laughs> Number five, a dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t shirts since black is the color of the devil. That's not in the Bible, by the way. So that's just, anyone got a black shirt on? Number six, a fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. And then number seven, which was my favorite one, a disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing. <laughs> hey, those are funny. Because we realize how ridiculous they sound. What's not funny is what that type of quarreling and division represents to the world outside these doors. Nor does pettiness such as that, in that type of manner, bring honor to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now therefore, we have to combat against that. If we're going to do so, we're going to have to do what Paul told Philippi all the way back in chapter 2, if you can remember, where he said, have the attitude of Christ Jesus who humbled himself unto the point of death, which implies what? It means we're going to have to die to our personal preferences in order to achieve unity in Christ and to keep that unity in Christ. That's going to be a great challenge for us. In order to do so, we are going to have to evaluate our reasoning alongside the Word of God. And if we find out, (laughs) when we find out, that the Bible doesn't hold other Christians to our personal preferences, then we are going to have to say to the other Christian, I digress. I may not agree with you. But I will choose to no longer allow my preference to create a gap between us. Do you want some homework to build spiritual maturity? Go home tonight for lunch. Take a week. Consider what personal opinions, preferences, or perspectives that you might have. Even though you're convinced that you're correct, that they're the correct opinion or preference or perspective, which ones does the Bible say, but these are nothing more than personal preferences? Romans 14, 1 through 6 is very helpful in us doing this. Paul writes, except the one whose faith is weak. Did the bold show up? Yeah, kind of. What does he say? Without quarreling over what? Disputable matters. And just stop for a second. He doesn't say, don't divide over orthodox Christianity. If someone says that we are saved by works, divide. That's an issue. Right? Well, I mean, first speak truth. I mean, we, you know, firmly and gently, but it's not disputable that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one being, is not disputable. That Scripture is the authority divinely inspired by God in the scepter of the church, quote John Stott. That is not up for debate, it's not disputable. That Jesus Christ is both man and God. It's not disputable. And Paul's not saying that. So we can't misunderstand that we, we, we could just discount all doctrines in order to remain united. That's not what he's saying. He's saying without quarreling over disputable manners. Okay, verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. But another... Whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. How? It wasn't on the basis of eating or not eating, God accepted them on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand. For the Lord is able to make them stand. Here's another issue. Verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each one, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat, does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains, does so to the Lord, and give thanks to God. Paul's point. Look, your, your conviction, indisputable manners, is not a sin. You're allowed to be, you, you should be convinced Of what you think honors God and giving thanks to him for. And you have freedom to do whatever you're convinced the word of God allows you to do. That could be taken out of context. I hope you get the point. This is in regard to eating and days and the disputable manners. However, Paul says, look, there's some who have not yet arrived to the same conclusion. And they're still convinced they should not partake in these things. Or that this specific day is special or not special. Yet, here's the application Paul gives. Neither of you should judge each other for having different convictions in disputable manners. Why? Here's here's the being charitable toward each other. Why? Because both of you, Paul says, are convinced that your choices honor the Lord. Do you want to learn how to be charitable towards someone you disagree with? Treat them as if their decision was made with the intent to honor Christ. Now our the weight or the significance we place on our personal preferences or our personal convictions in disputable manners, we tend to look at the other Christian. As if they're a lesser Christian, or maybe are you even a Christian if you don't agree with me? Paul says, don't do that. Don't judge them in that way over these disputable matters. Instead, be charitable, because what the Word of God says is they made their decision with the intent of glorifying God, just as you made your decision with the intent of glorifying God. It's hard to do. (laughs) Even harder is verse 22 in Romans 14. Here's some good application for all of us. Because in verse 22 of Romans 14, Paul goes on to say, now, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. (laughs) He says it more gently than I would. Keep it to yourself. Stop bringing it up. Stop causing division about things that are disputable. Keep it between yourself and God. It's okay to have conversations. But if we begin to judge and condemn one another over disputable manners, matters, well... That we have to apply the text that says, wait, okay, did you arrive there at at your position by believing that that honors Christ most? Yes, I did. Praise God. Then what I need to do is I just need to go home and I need to just keep this to myself. I'm glad that you are trying to glorify God with every decision. And the same goes vice versa. And finally... Because of the cross of Christ, remember, they are not your enemies. We we are not enemies. Verse 3. Take a sip. Paul's relationship with with the church of Philippi, if you read the entire letter, it's a good relationship. He loves them. They love him. And, and I expect when he wrote this letter, he anticipated that the church would just come alongside these two women, right? Even, even in the beginning of the letter, he addresses it to church of Philippi, to the elders and the deacons, the entire church, right? He's writing this letter to the entire church. And I'm sure he, he anticipates them to come alongside Eudea and Syntek and say, hey, women, Ladies, let's agree to find commonality in Christ. And whatever we cannot determine as pleasing to the Lord, let us agree to release one another from those demands. And verse three. Verse three is good. It, it, it's, it, it must have served the church and the women who were in the quarrel, quarreling with one another. It's a helpful reminder that both of them involved in the conflict are sisters in Christ. Look at the verse. Look at verse 3. Paul says, help these women. They've labored side by side with me in the gospel. Together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. And what does he say about them? Their names are written in the book of life. Read Revelation. Those names who are written in the book of life are those who' have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. We talked about it last week in Easter. The only way your name is written in the book of life is if your sins are forgiven and you've believed Jesus has risen from the dead. That's it. He says that he's, they're saved. They're born again. They're believers. They're your sisters in Christ. Judea. Syntax, your sister in Christ. Syntax, Eudia is your sister in Christ. Paul says, both. In, in these situations, both are redeemed by Christ. They both play for the same team. If you were in our final men's meeting, uh, this. Previous past Monday, you'll be familiar with this illustration I'm about to use, and, and hopefully it was good enough to repeat. So uh, the illustration I used uh, about unity, what team we played for, is from the movie Miracle. It's a movie about the 1980s USA Olympic hockey team who went on to win the gold medal. The team was made up by a bunch of different college students from all around the country. And some had been rivals for many years. Now, During the beginning of their training for the Olympics, the coach would always ask them, What's your name? Where are you from? What team do you play for? And whenever, you know, in the beginning, (laughs) when asked, they would state their name, their hometown. And the college that they played for. Until one night. After poor performance in a scrimmage game. Which their coach just saw. That they were putting no effort into. They weren't taking it serious. He made them get on the goal line. After, after the game. And just skate. Up and down the rink for hours. As fast as they could go. He, he was Outraged that they, they, they weren't taking the significance of representing America in the Olympics seriously. And at one point, he, he scolds them and says, you need to understand that the name on the front of your jersey is more important than the name on the back of your jersey. And Finally, one of the hockey players gets it. I forget his name. I'm not, I'll butcher it. And and he's he's exhausted, and he shouts out his name, and then he shouts out where he's from. And then the coach pauses and asks him, what team do you play for? And the player says, the United States of America. The coach looks at the worn-out team and says, that's it, gentlemen. Practice is over. None of those players knew at first what team. They didn't understand the significance of the team that they played for. They kept saying what college they played for. What he was looking for is for them to say, I play for the United States of America. This isn't a political point, by the way, just for clarity. The point is, Christian, remember who you play for. Remember who they play for if you get into a dispute. We are all on the same team. This is what Paul says. We are all united as one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. The identity of being in Christ is necessary for your salvation. And also the identity that your brothers and sisters are in Christ should trump every other identity that you have or are disputing about. person you were quarreling with they were made in the image of god too just like you the person that you're quarreling with they've been redeemed by the blood of jesus christ just like you and therefore the cross of christ at the cross of christ the blood of jesus declares you are not enemies that's your brother christian that's your sister, Christian. Judea, Syntech. Come here. It's time to reconcile. Paul wrote us a letter and said the path of reconciliation begins with you two agreeing in the Lord. First, we just need to remind both of you. Each of your names are written in the book of life. Only because the Son of God bled and died for your sins. That death reconciled you to God, even when you didn't deserve it. Therefore, Sinti, Eudea, may the love of Christ be the guide which restores you to back into unity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, have, we as Christians, I don't want to generalize every Christian, we have not exactly looked united in the gospel of Jesus Christ And it's been over disputable manners that we have allowed a loud division to create a gap between us. God, I pray by your Holy Spirit and by the truth that we are one in the body of Christ, Lord, that God, that your light would triumph over that darkness that tries to destroy the witness of Jesus Christ to the unbelieving world, and, would, and that your word and spirit would glorify Christ in us, would unite us. We would reconcile together and glorify your son's death and resurrection and the new earth and the new heavens that he's bringing with him at his return. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.